Hi, I'm Kelly. And I'm Lavinia. Welcome to There She Goes, where women writers share true stories of travel. Their stories, their experiences, told in their own voices. One of the reasons we started this podcast is that the first time Kelly and I met, we told each other travel stories. We were complete strangers, but after spending just a few hours trading stories about experiences in Morocco and South Korea, Italy and Greece, we were friends. Our travel stories connected us. We recognized them as important. And we came away from that first meeting feeling validated and inspired. This is the power of women's personal travel narratives. Consider our storytelling podcast a brand new passport, transporting you every week to a different place for a brief escape, sometimes far away, other times closer to home. Consider our storytellers your brand new travel friends, your sidekicks and sisters and guides. Or even therapists. And consider this your chance to hear some of the stories you may have missed. There She Goes is that simple. No chit-chat, no interviews. Just great storytelling by women travelers. We invite you to settle in for the adventure. Today we travel with Natalie Bazil to southern Louisiana to experience the healing power of food. Natalie is the author of Queen Sugar, which has been adapted for a fifth television season by and co-produced by Ava DuVernay and Oprah Winfrey. Her new nonfiction book, We Are Each Other's Harvest, celebrating African-American farmers, land, and memory, is forthcoming from HarperCollins in April 2021. I'm Natalie Bazil, and I'll be reading my story, The Boudin Trail. It's two o'clock, a Thursday afternoon in early May, and the air inside the New Orleans airport smells like fried fish, mildew, and a hint of the Gulf. It's a comforting smell, at least to me, and every time I fly down here from California, the first thing I do stepping off the plane into the terminal is inhale deeply. If I were here by myself, I'd be on the road by now, easing into the Crescent City or flying down Highway 90 towards New Iberia, where my friends live. This trip, though, is different. I'm on a mission. I'm meeting my mother, my dad, and my sister Jennifer, to whom I just started talking after a two-year estrangement. I'm taking them on a drive along the Boudin Trail. We have a lot of healing to do on this trip. Jennifer's flight from Connecticut is scheduled to arrive 20 minutes after mine. We've agreed to meet in baggage claim. The carousel has just lurched to life and suitcases are sliding down the black conveyor belt when I spot Jennifer at the top of the escalator. For years, we both wore short afros. People assumed we were twins. Three years ago, Jennifer decided to grow pencil-thin dreadlocks, and now they cascade across her shoulders. I can't help but stare. Even in jeans and a v-neck t-shirt, she looks downright regal. It's odd to think of my mother and my sister being here in this place I've laid claim to. Louisiana is mine, and I'm not eager to share it. I cringe at the thought of showing them around the city taking them to the restaurants and shops I frequent, the out-of-the-way spots most tourists know nothing about. I'm being selfish, I know, 
If my Louisiana friends had been this closed-hearted with me, I'd still be a tourist, wandering down Bourbon Street with a fishbowl filled with green alcohol hanging from a cord around my neck. My dad is the person I should thank for introducing me to Louisiana. He was born and raised in Elton, a tiny town 190 miles to the west. And even though he hated almost everything about his life down here, he hated the humidity, the grass growing between the cracks in the sidewalks, hated how every man in his family was a pastor of a tiny storefront church, hated Louisiana so much he left the night of his high school graduation, set out for California and never looked back. He still returned every spring to take his mother on a road trip. Grand Isle, Holly Beach, Natchitoches. Any place they could get to and back from in four days, which was all the time he could stand before he started remembering why he left in the first place. When I was in college, he invited me to tag along, and even after my grandmother died, I kept coming back. Unlike my dad, I loved the heat and the crumbling buildings overtaken by kudzu. I loved the endless hours my aunts and uncles and cousins spent in church. I loved Louisiana's earthiness, her accents, and her twisting bayous. I loved it all, or mostly all. So while I wait for my bags, I give myself a little pep talk. Come on, Bazil, lighten up. This'll be fun. By the time Jennifer steps off the escalator, I'm feeling generous. Hey, wench, I say and hug my little sister. Hey, wench, Jen says, hugging me back. This is our standard hello, the way we've greeted each other since we were teenagers. But we haven't used the greeting at all lately, and I can tell Jennifer is as nervous and as relieved as I am to say the words. We used to be close used to call each other every day, sometimes two or three times a day, and then suddenly, two years ago, we stopped speaking. At the time, I was struggling to write my novel, going to grad school and raising kids. Jennifer was divorcing her husband, writing a memoir, and leaving her university job. I don't remember the details of the argument, only that one day, neither of us picked up the phone. Days stretched into weeks. Weeks stretched into months. We didn't speak when her book was published or when my oldest daughter delivered her middle school graduation speech. We didn't speak when our dad's cancer came back a second time. It was only after my dad landed in the hospital with failing kidneys that we finally reconciled. It would be a shame if you two made up over your father's deathbed. That's what my husband told Jen when he called her to intervene. She called me a couple days later to say she was coming to San Francisco for a conference. She asked if we could meet. I drove down to her hotel near the airport and saw her through the plate glass windows in the lobby. Before I could park, she was outside, standing beside my car. An hour after Jen and I meet in baggage claim, my mother arrives dressed in pleated pastel slacks and white patent loafers, a black quilted carry-on slung over her shoulder. She greets us with her signature beauty contestant wave and flashes a toothy smile. Here they are, my two girls, she says, standing on her toes to kiss us. She runs her hands through Jennifer's dreads, fingering the tiny cowrie shell dangling from one of them. Where's dad, I ask. 
Got him right here, Mom says, and pats her carry-on conspiratorially. Jennifer massages her temples. Her tone is somber. I can't believe we're doing this. A trip along the Budan Trail was my idea. Three years ago, a friend sent an article listing all the Budan places in South Louisiana. The article linked to a website showing every grocery store, restaurant, gas station, and roadside stand along a 200-mile strip between New Orleans and Lake Charles. If you planned it right and had the stomach for it, the article said, you could hit every establishment in a single weekend, three days tops. The moment I finished the article, I called Dad. How'd you like to take a trip along the Boudin Trail, I asked. My dad was into slow food and nose-to-tail eating decades before the lifestyle was fashionable or trendy. Black folks practically invented slow food, he liked to say. As a kid, he grew up in South Louisiana, hunting raccoons and possums and squirrels in the woods behind his house. Then he'd bring them home to his mother, who cooked them in stews. Sometimes he shot an animal just to see how it tasted. Once he shot and ate a crow. Let's do it, he said. I'd like to get home one last time anyway. He'd just been diagnosed with leomyosarcoma for the second time. But instead of getting to take a road trip with me, he spent the next two and a half years cycling through hospitals and rehab centers, growing frailer every month. Until the cancer, he'd never spent a night in the hospital. By the end, he couldn't walk from the family room to the kitchen, couldn't hold a fork. Now it's just the three of us, my mom, Jennifer, and me. Mom has transferred some of Dad's ashes from the urn she has at home into a small wooden container no bigger than a pack of cigarettes. That container is now safely zipped in a plastic sandwich bag. We're going to sprinkle Dad's ashes along the Boudin Trail. We've just tossed our suitcases into the trunk when Jennifer notices my food bags Two oversized, insulated, empty totes with heavy-duty zippers and straps wide as seatbelts. You've got to be kidding, she says. What? I sound defensive. Someone has to do it. Dad always brought his food bags on our road trips so he could stock up. He bought boudin, but also crawfish and andouille sausage he used in his gumbos. We stopped in a handful of towns on our way back to my grandmother's house and by the time he'd purchased what he needed, we could barely zip the bags, each of which, between the food and the ice packs, weighed nearly 50 pounds. Dad treated his food bags like they were his children. He requested hotel rooms closest to the ice machine, monitored the bag's internal temperature, and made sure the contents stayed cold. He carried them on the plane rather than check them as luggage. Now, Jennifer looks at me skeptically. Do you even know how to cook gumbo, she asks. That's not the point, I say, folding the food bags and tucking them in among the suitcases. We're hurtling down I-10 when we spot Don's specialty meats, the first stop along the trail. Don's used to have a single location off Highway 49 in Karenko. Recently, they built a huge operation in Scott just off the interstate frontage road. The building looks more like a casino with its enormous red neon sign and sprawling parking lot. We pull between two monster trucks. 
Mom takes the plastic baggie out of her carry-on. How do you sprinkle someone's ashes in a store without alarming the proprietors or the customers? The question hasn't occurred to us until just now. We step inside Dawn's and feel the rush of air-conditioned air against our skin. The place is packed. There's a long line of people at the counter ordering boudin to go. Another dozen shoppers plunder the deep freezers and banks of refrigerators along the wall. I see no way to do this without somebody noticing. And suddenly, all I can think of are all the sanitation laws we're surely breaking. I'm about to chicken out when Mom comes up behind me, gripping a plastic spoon. She grins. I got this from the girl at the counter. Jennifer posts herself near the front counter and keeps watch while Mom and I wander to the back corner. Mom opens the plastic bag, lifts the lid on the little wooden box, and scoops out a quarter teaspoon of what looks like tiny bits of gravel and grit. She bends low and sprinkles the cremains of my father under the last refrigerator, back far enough that no one will notice. They look pale and gray, almost like silt against the dirty white floor tiles. I've never seen Dad's ashes before. I think back on all the years I heard Mom scold Dad for being overweight, how he loved to walk barefoot through the garden behind my house because the feel of his feet in the soil reminded him of his Louisiana childhood and my mind can't compute. I can't reconcile those memories with the spoonful of dust. Mom dips the white spoon into the bag again, then looks at me. I think we should say something. Her suggestion catches me flat-footed. Until now, the tone of our trip has been easy and lighthearted. We've cracked off-colored jokes and reminisced about the time Dad glided off the treadmill and broke his arm. We shake our heads in wonder at the time he took 12 Aleve tablets in one sitting. It's gallows humor, we know, but it's our way of coping. Why are we getting serious now, I wonder? Besides, Jen's the better public speaker. Three years my junior, she's always possessed a seriousness, an intensity that makes most people assume she's older. She delivered the eulogy at Dad's memorial that had everyone in tears. Well, Dad, I say, fumbling for the words, I guess this is it. But it isn't. As I stand there listening to the refrigerator's hum, I think about how, before he got sick, people often mistook him for Muhammad Ali. It was easy to do. He had the presence and the personality to match. If he were here now, he'd be sauntering down the aisles, his arms loaded with frozen packages of smoked Buddha and andouille sausage, never bothering to disabuse staring onlookers of their belief he might actually be the real prize fighter. Now, standing under the fluorescent lights in the bustling store, I thank Dad aloud for letting me tag along on all those road trips. I tell him about my book. I tell him Mom's going to be okay and that Jennifer and I are talking again. When I finish, Mom grabs my hand and squeezes. We give Jennifer the signal, two thumbs up, and the three of us walk back to the car. Two more stops and we've established a rhythm. The Best Stop Supermarket, Billy's Boudin and Cracklin's. My mother keeps the plastic spoon. We have our goodbyes down to five minutes. 
we pass through St. Martinville and scatter cremains in the parking lot of Joyce's supermarket. Rabideau's in Iowa doesn't sell boudin, so it's not officially on the trail, but we swing by anyway because Dad swore they made the best andouille in all of South Louisiana. It's a tiny shop with a counter and a single display case. In a place this small, we'd get busted for sure, so we mix Dad's ashes in the soil of a potted palm near the door. The Walmart Supercenter in Jennings is our last stop before we call it quits for the night. The place is as large as three football fields, and it takes us a while to find the outdoor sportsman section, which is where the insulated food bags are sold. As far as Dad was concerned, you couldn't have too many, so we pick out one we think he would have liked and place it on the bottom shelf. And since we're less concerned with sanitation, we scoop out a heaping spoonful of cremains and sprinkle them liberally underneath. The cleaning crew will mop this aisle by this time tomorrow. At least we've paid our respects. The next morning, we drive to Elton, Dad's hometown. When Dad was a kid, he planted a water oak sapling in his front yard. The house he grew up in has long since been raised, but the sapling is now a massive oak tree, four stories tall with roots so thick they've buckled the sidewalks. Picture this. Two sisters stand at the base of an enormous oak, a tree their dad planted 65 years earlier. They are surrounded by 25 people, aunts and uncles and cousins. Their great-aunt Dell, who just turned 93, and a few of their father's childhood friends. Their cousin Antoinette steps forward and sings the first verse of At the Cross, their dad's favorite hymn. Her voice is crisp and clear, a siren's voice that rises into the oak tree's highest branches. And when the rest of the crowd joins in the singing, the sound carries down the street and out to the road. The group sings two more hymns, both a cappella, the way black folks in the South used to sing when the girl's dad was a boy. The moment has an old-timey feel. When the singing stops, the girls hold hands. They watch their Uncle Sonny dig a hole between the tree roots. Their mother places the little wooden box inside, and then their Uncle Charles fills the hole with concrete and places a small marble headstone over the spot. It's done. Their dad is home. It's a long drive back to New Orleans. Jennifer and I are speaking again, a gift of our father's illness, but no one has much to say. We pass all the Boudin stops we visited on the way out, but this time we don't stop. I don't realize how different, how sacred a trip this has been from what I expected till I get to the airport and see them. My food bags. They're empty. You've been listening to There She Goes, a storytelling podcast created by two women travelers and recorded from their homes in Alabama and Louisiana. Our theme music is a selection from the song City of Refuge, created and performed by Abigail Washburn. Thanks to Jay Burgess for engineering. Thanks to our amazing writers for proving how essential women's stories are and for bringing their voices to There She Goes. And thanks to you, our listeners, for coming along. We hope you'll be back next week. 
for another story and another stamp in your new passport. <laughs>